This is Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. No matter how hard we try to avoid them, conflicts are everywhere. Kids squabble over breakfast at the kitchen table. Colleagues bicker in a team meeting. Nations clash across the globe. For many of us, our first impulse when it comes to conflict is to ask, how can I shut it down? How can I resolve it? This impulse makes sense. Conflict is uncomfortable and unpleasant. It produces hurt and animosity. It can destroy relationships. But sometimes, the roots of antagonism and anger are so deeply entrenched that avoiding conflict isn't possible and trying to reach a happy place of agreement and love isn't realistic. Increasingly, psychological research is taking a different approach to discord with profound implications for disputes big and small. This week on Hidden Brain, we kick off a series that we're calling Relationships 2.0. Today, what if we set aside the goal of eliminating conflict and instead ask, how can we do conflict better? Support for Hidden Brain comes from Intuit TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Support for Hidden Brain comes from Discover. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for Hidden Brain comes from Robert Half. Robert Half research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. That's why you need Robert Half. Robert Half's specialized recruiting professionals engage with their proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, they know talent. Visit roberthalf.com. Think back to the last time you found yourself in an argument with someone. It might have been over something trivial, like a parking spot on a crowded street. Or it might have been serious, like the best path forward for a company or a marriage. Unless you're a very special human being, you likely found yourself getting hot under the collar. You may have felt the other side was being unreasonable, perhaps deliberately so. At Harvard University, psychologist Julia Minson studies the psychology of disagreement. In recent years, she has developed some surprisingly simple but powerful techniques 
to help people trapped in conflict get unstuck. Julia Minson, welcome to Hidden Brain. Thanks so much for having me. Julia, I want to take you back to some of your earliest observations about conflict, and they took place while you were ballroom dancing, especially when you observed what happened between dancers offstage. Uh, when and where was this, and what did you observe? Uh, so I spent uh, most of my teens and early 20s ballroom dancing, and you just see what happens behind the scenes. <laughs> and, and what does happen behind the scenes? Well, what happens behind the scenes is, you know, people are practicing and looking like they're fabulously in love. And then, you know, the music stops and they break into an argument about, well, you know, you were too fast or you were too slow or you were <laughs> leaning or you were not leaning enough. You know, and of course, the other person then doesn't agree with the first person's characterization of what really happened and off they go. So I understand you had a recurrent conflict with your own dance partner, Ryan. Uh, at the time, he was your boyfriend. He's now your husband. Uh, wh what was that uh, conflict about, Julia? You know, so the conflict was something doesn't work, doesn't feel right in the dancing. And you're looking to diagnose the cause. And the cause is always the other person. And... I started dancing much younger than he did, but he is just a more talented dancer. So between the two of us, I was more knowledgeable and he was just better. And we are not big screamers. Um, we are more the silent brooders. But, you know, we've certainly had times where we stop speaking while we're dancing, but we're preparing for an important competition, so you still have to practice. So you're glaring at each other, not talking to each other, but you're still dancing together. So when you go to graduate school at Stanford University, you started working with the great psychologist Lee Roth. And, and one topic he studied was something called naive realism. Uh, we've talked about naive realism on the show before, but can you explain what it is and what it predicts happens to people who find themselves in conflict? I think of naive realism as one of the most important ideas in social psychology. And it's basically the idea that people naively believe that their perceptions of reality and how things are and how things ought to be are realistic, right? So what I perceive is what's sort of really out there. Um, and it's an idea that works just fine when we talk about our physical perceptions, right? So if I think something is a solid object, then I should treat it as such and not walk into it. But then people apply the same conviction to social reality, which is generally really, really messy and often hotly contested. So you take topics where, you know, where reasonable people disagree and see things very, very differently. And yet both sides still think that they have an accurate uh, conceptualization of how reality really is, right? Like, I basically get it. I see how things really are. And what people sort of forget is that what I see isn't exactly what's out there. It's what my brain allows me to see. So apply for me, if you will, the, the idea of naive realism to the disagreement that you would have with Ryan offstage before you would go on stage for your ballroom dancing sessions. What would go through your mind and what would go through his mind 
that made each of you think the way that I'm seeing the situation is the correct way to see the situation? Um, one thing that's really strange about ballroom dancing is that when you're dancing, you are in fact physically facing each other, which means you are literally looking at the world from opposite directions, mm-hmm. right? So as you're sort of going around the room and there might be a mirror on the wall, when you see that mirror, by definition, it means that your partner's back is to the mirror and your partner cannot see it. So 100% of the time, you're actually making decisions about what looks right and what doesn't look right based on different information. But I think, you know, the problem sort of goes deeper than that, which is that whenever you disagree, and this was very much part of Lee Ross's theory, you have to make what he called attributions for disagreement. You have to explain to yourself, why is it that we disagree? And it's basically a story you make up in your own mind about, you know, what is the cause of this disagreement? And the simplest version is we disagree because the other person is wrong. So in mine and Ryan's case, I had a lot more knowledge about the theory. I mean, you don't think of dancing as having theory, but it does because it's a lot of physics. And he was just better without necessarily being able to explain how he's doing what he is doing. And so when we disagreed, both of us had good reason to believe that we were right because I knew more. And he would say, well, look, this looks better and this feels better and therefore it's right. So um, you and a, and a grad school classmate, Francis Chen, came up with a way to get around the problem of naive realism, or at least you thought it would get around the problem of naive realism. And you based an experiment that you conducted on what scientists know about the bond between parents and children. Uh, describe for me the study, Julia. Yeah, so uh, Francis uh, came into the program very interested in developmental psychology and, you know, mothers and babies. And, you know, we were both sort of really fascinated with this problem of naive realism and conflict and disagreement. And she said, you know, eye contact is this really powerful uh, mechanism that people have that increases bonding. Right. So, you know, mothers and babies gaze into each other's eyes and it releases the hormone oxytocin, which is uh, sort of the bonding hormone. When people are attracted to each other, they gaze into each other's eyes. So what if we got people to gaze into each other's eyes while they're discussing something that they disagree on? And would that trigger kind of this biological liking that would then translate into kind of a more sensible conversation. It made sense. So Julia and Francis ran some experiments to test if maintaining eye contact might reduce disagreement. Well, we found that we were wrong. (laughs) So that was weird, and it was exactly the opposite of what we had predicted. And people who were asked to make direct eye contact with somebody that they disagreed with actually ended up disagreeing even more than the people who were asked to look at the mouth or, you know, sort of let their gaze wander. So I understand that you and Francis got together to talk about the results, and and, and this was uh, at your home uh, at the time in Philadelphia. Paint me a scene of that conversation, Julia. 
Yes. Yeah, so we were in our home. You know, we had just had dinner and, you know, my husband was doing the dishes and we were still sitting there talking about the paper. And I thought we had a really like counterintuitive finding, right? It was exactly the opposite of what we had predicted. And I said, you know, great, we get to write this paper that's going to be really attention grabbing about how eye contact is bad. And Frances really didn't like that framing because she had done a lot of work that showed the opposite. And we, you know, we started arguing about it. And Frances is a very, very sort of reasonable, soft-spoken, mild-mannered sort of woman. And she wouldn't budge and I wouldn't budge. And I was getting frustrated because, you know, we had this like great result and it was so obvious that my framing was better. And eventually my husband literally interjected physically between us at the kitchen table with two bowls of ice cream. And he said, come on, settle down, take it easy. <laughs> I, I love the fact that unlike most people who get in fights, you, you looked at what happened with curiosity and you asked if there were clues in the conversation to help you better understand the nature of discord. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell me what you observed about the difference between disagreements and conflict. I think the question you're asking about disagreement versus conflict is really important. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I think it's really important for organizations in particular, because on one hand, we often tell people that like disagreement is good, right? You know, we want to have a team of rivals and we want opposing perspectives and everybody should have different ideas about things. On the other hand, conflict feels bad. And so, you know, disagreement is I believe X and you believe Y. So in other words, I like vanilla, you like chocolate. Yes, absolutely. Or I think this candidate will win and you think that candidate will win. And most of the time, presumably, I'm okay with you believing X and me believing Y. It doesn't threaten me for you to be believing one thing while I believe the other. Right. So you can think of, you know, lots of disagreements that are actually very enjoyable, right? So people love debating, you know, what the end of a particular TV show really meant, right? Or which sports team should win the Super Bowl, right? So there are some disagreements that aren't just okay, they're actually fun. So what happens when disagreements spiral into conflict? What what changes? Really, when we're talking about regular people in their regular lives, it's conflict about beliefs or conflict about attitudes. And the difference between disagreement and attitude conflict is that I believe X, you believe Y, and I'm not okay with you believing Y. I need to change your Y to be closer to my X. What do you think drives that? What, why is it in some cases we are okay with, with you believing that uh, Team 1 is going to win the Super Bowl, I'm okay with Team 2 winning the Super Bowl, but on other issues, I desperately need you to believe what I believe? So I think there's three things that play into it. The first factor that, of course, matters is, is this an important issue? Is this something that I believe has important consequences? So, for example, if you and I disagree about the importance of flossing your teeth, it's not as important as if we disagree about the importance of getting vaccinated against COVID-19, 
right? So one will give you cavities, the other might kill you. There is a big difference in importance. The second one is what we call interdependence. So does your attitude actually affect my outcomes? If we're a couple going out to dinner and I want Chinese and you want pizza, we're completely interdependent because we have to agree on where we're going. And so now if you add that up with importance, your preferences on it directly impact me, right? So think about, you know, buying a home in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. It's an important thing and we are stuck together in this house. <laughs> right. right. And what's the third factor? The third factor uh, is what we call evidentiary skew. And basically what that means is, do I believe that the evidence is overwhelmingly on my side? And so once you end up in a situation where the issue is important, we are interdependent in terms of our actions and beliefs, and both of us believe that there's more evidence on our side than the other side, then it's very hard to just let the other person keep believing whatever it is they want to. And I'm thinking about you and your uh, colleague, Francis, as you were sitting at your uh, kitchen table arguing about the results of the paper. Uh-huh. You know, in some ways it meets all three criteria. It does. It's, you know, years of work and we're stuck together because we're co-authors and we both think we have the right answer. Much as two parties might disagree with each other but still need to coexist, people on different sides of a disagreement often still need to work together. A fighting couple might be raising children together. Israelis and Palestinians might share common ground when it comes to combating climate change. Republicans and Democrats who are at loggerheads on social spending might agree on the importance of imposing sanctions on a rogue nation. When we come back, Techniques to keep conflict in one area from spiraling into places where we share common ground. You're listening to Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with benefits like four times points that adapt to your top two eligible spending categories every month on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. And up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at T-Mobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. This is Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. Julia Minson is a psychologist at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She studies the psychology of disagreement. 
Many experts in Julia's field of conflict resolution research ways to get people to come to agreement on contentious issues. Julia's research has taken a different tack. She has observed that in many cases, people on different sides of a contentious issue might never change their minds, but they still need to work together on matters of shared importance. Julia, as we've seen, conflicts have a way of spiraling. Uh, once we jump to the conclusion that people who disagree with us on something are our enemies, it poisons the water on every issue, including areas where agreement is possible. Now, you've had a recurring argument with your husband. Ryan is a data analytics expert, and he periodically wonders whether he should find a new job. Tell me how these conversations unfold and how they became a source of conflict. Well, so, uh, you know, we have been together for a very long time. We've been married for 22 years now. So every few years, we go through sort of a period where he says something like, well, you know, it's been three years since the last time I've gotten promoted. Uh, and so for the next few months, just FYI, I'm going to be working really long hours because at my next annual review, I want to jump to the next level. And that all sounds very sensible, but what that really means is that he's going to work really, really hard. They're not going to recognize it because corporate America is rarely fair. And then he will be frustrated. And then we'll go through another sort of like long drawn out period of him deciding what to do and whether to move somewhere else and, you know. Um, and and you're, describe, you're describing this in a very calm, level-headed, analytical way. I'm assuming <laughs> that's the way these conversations actually unfolded? Well, these conversations unfold like this in my head, whereas, you know, in reality, what happens, right, is that he tells me that he's unhappy in his job and I tell him what to do. And he says, don't tell me what to do. And ironically, the longer you're married, the less you feel heard because nobody's actually listening anymore because we both think we know what the other person is about to say. He is about to complain about his job. I'm about to tell him to go get another job offer so that he gets promoted at the current job because he has an alternative offer. And then he will tell me to stop meddling in his career and then I will walk off in a cuff because it's not just his career. It's our, you know, whole, it affects the whole family. And, you know, I mean, it's tremendously important. You know, my husband's income is the lion's share of the income in our household. And we are completely interdependent because when he says, I'm going to work much longer hours to get this next promotion, it means that I am now taking care of three kids with less help. And of course, I teach negotiations, so I think I know how to do this. So I am 100% confident that I'm right. And he says, no, it's my career in my organization, and I know the rules, and I'm 100% confident that I'm right. Now, you decided to try something with Ryan that you were learning from your research. But in order to get to that, after your you know, somewhat false start with that eye contact study, you started uh, working on a technique that you call conversational receptiveness. What, what is conversational receptiveness? So conversational receptiveness is the use of words and phrases to demonstrate to your counterpart that you're engaged with their point of view. 
quite often when we give people advice about conflict and how they should handle conflict, we tell them, try to be more empathetic, try to take the other person's perspective, right? Try to exercise intellectual humility. And what we found was that their counterpart has no idea that they're doing any of that. It's not transparent. And because it's not transparent, it has no effect on the conflict. And so conversational receptiveness is basically predicated on the idea that we need to demonstrate to people that we're engaged with their point of view in a way that's visible and very easily recognizable to counterparts because you can't get credit for things in your head. Julia discovered through her research that there are four specific techniques that communicate conversational receptiveness. And they make a nice acronym. The acronym is HEAR, as in I hear you. The H stands for hedging. So it's saying things like perhaps or sometimes or maybe. The E stands for emphasizing agreement. So I might say, I agree that the last couple years have been really hard on people. Or we both think that it's really important to make school safe for our kids. The A stands for acknowledgement. So it's essentially using some of your own airtime to restate your counterpart's position. And then the R stands for reframing to the positive. So you can basically say the exact same idea using positive words instead of negative terms, right? You might say, you know, instead of saying, I hate it when people interrupt me, you might say, I really love it when people let me finish. Julia has used this four-step process, hedging, emphasizing areas of agreement, acknowledging the other person's perspective, and reframing to the positive, to train groups of people in the practice of conversational receptiveness. I asked her to describe what happens when people employ these techniques. So it's really interesting. Um, You know, there is work going back to the 1960s that basically says people love feeling heard. And that's essentially what conversational receptiveness does, is it makes people feel like their counterpart is really engaging with them. And so as a consequence, they think of those counterparts as more trustworthy. They think of them as being more objective. They think they have better professional judgment if this is a professional situation. They're more willing to talk to this person about other issues. So basically you get a lot of positive interpersonal benefits from essentially saying the same thing, but saying it in a way that acknowledges your partner's point of view. And I understand that there are elements of conversational receptiveness that in some ways are contagious, that in some ways you're demonstrating it prompts your partner as well to to demonstrate some of it. Yes. And the thing that's very interesting about conversational receptiveness is that we've done studies where, you know, we train one person to be conversationally receptive, right? Let's say person A, and then person B responds to person A. And not only is it the case that 
the more receptive A is, the more receptive B is. But it also seems that B is using other aspects of conversational receptiveness. So they're picking up kind of like the whole style. They're not just directly copying the words that were said to them. A lot of the the work on conversational receptiveness is focused on the value of asking questions. And and I think most people don't think about the difference between asking questions versus making statements. People don't actually are not conscious when they're having conversations about how many statements they're making versus how many questions they're asking. Uh, But you found that the, the act of asking questions itself can have a transformative effect on a conversation. Describe that for me, Julia. What it does is it demonstrates curiosity and interest in the other person and the desire to learn about them and the desire to sort of show that you're putting in the cognitive effort. And what I mean by that is the very first paper I wrote with Francis um, when we were at Stanford and I was still working with Lee Ross was a paper about asking questions. And Lee said to us at the time, you know, you are not going to get good results from telling people to ask questions in conflict because people are going to ask nasty questions. They're going to say things like, what kind of idiot believes that? (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. So like in most things, uh, having anything to do with psychology, Lee was right. We only started getting positive sort of effects from question asking when we specified what kinds of questions people were allowed to ask. So we call them elaboration questions, which are basically, you know, would you please elaborate? So you could say something like, I'm curious why you believe that. Right. It's a statement, but it's doing the work of a question because what it's, you know, it's expressing curiosity. And that's similar to another paper where we we got people together who were not in conflict, people who were simply trying to get to know each other and have sort of a pleasant conversation. Right. So imagine, you know, being at a party with colleagues or imagine you're dating. Right. What makes for a pleasant conversation? And what we found was that being asked questions made you like your counterpart more, but it was specific questions. It was what we called follow-up questions. So if I said, where did you grow up? And you say Chicago, I can't then say, where did you go on vacation? Because it's a question, but it's ignoring what you just told me. I would be much better off saying, oh, do you like the Cubs? So you need a question that follows up because it demonstrates listening and interest. Some of these ideas might seem obvious. If you want to have a good conversation, listen. Show interest in what the other person has to say. Demonstrate curiosity. Avoid making statements that suggest your opinion is the only opinion worth hearing. But knowing the right thing to do and actually doing it are not the same thing. One day after work, Julia had the opportunity to practice conversational receptiveness with her husband. It was on a Friday evening, 
and Julia had spent the entire week at a mediation seminar where she got to practice the art of conversational receptiveness. This was five days, eight hours a day of nothing but mediation. And an important technique that mediators use is something they call the listening triangle, which is very conceptually related to conversational receptiveness. You ask a party in conflict a question, you listen to the answer, and then you say, well, I just heard you say X, Y, Z. Is that right? And then that starts the next round because you just asked a question. And so now you have to listen to the answer. And then they finish talking and you say, aha, so it seems like you're saying blah, blah, blah. Is that right? And then you're just supposed to do this endlessly until the person you're listening to says, yeah, 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 you got it. (laughs) Like, I'm done. Um, And I was impressed with this technique, and I thought that this was really related to conversational receptiveness because it's all based on acknowledgement. And then, you know, the week runs out, and it's Friday night, uh, and I remember having martinis at our kitchen bar, and my husband says the thing that he, you know, sometimes says that, you know, I'm going to be working really hard because there are these projects I want to finish and I want to get promoted. And without giving it another thought, I said, you always say this and then you never do anything about it and then you never get credit for it. And here's what you should do instead. And he was so, so upset with me. And I was sort of surprised by how upset he was. And... As I said when we were talking in the beginning of this conversation, we're, we're not yellers, we're, we're slow brooders. So now, you know, he is silently washing the dishes and I'm sitting there at the kitchen bar with this martini that, you know, the nice evening just kind of, you know, got destroyed. And I'm trying to understand what just happened and how we got here. And then I remember this damn class I've been in all week. <laughs> And the irony just blew my mind that I knew exactly what I should have done. And I knew it from my research and I had just spent a week practicing it on strangers. And then I was in this moment when it was perfectly applicable and I didn't even think of doing it. And so I was, I was surprised at how, at how hard it was to, one, even bring that knowledge online in the moment, and then once it was kind of top of mind for me to really execute on it. What did you do, Julia? I sat there for probably, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes wrestling with myself. And then I literally just said, you know what, let's try this again. Tell me why you think you need to work harder and longer. And then I just like shut my mouth and I listened and I asked follow-up questions. And I was very much not like genuinely interested, right? I was just trying to defuse a fight. And he wasn't like happy with me, but it did do the job. And he was actually not looking for my input in his career. He was looking for my support while he did what he thought needed to be done. And the entire time I'm sitting there thinking in my head, when is he going to ask me for my opinion? You know, but I'm like, nope. I said to myself, I'm not doing that anymore. 
And so I would just ask questions and clarify and, you know, and he would talk. And then over time, he started saying, well, what do you think I should do? And I started very carefully saying, well, I might consider possibly doing X, Y, Z, right? Which is sort of hedging my claims uh, and just sort of offering it as a suggestion, not saying you need to go do X. And that's sort of been the dynamic is recognizing that it is his career. And I think me giving him that respect has led him to give me the respect of saying, hey, negotiation professor, what should I do? I mean, it's a real irony here, isn't it? Which is the harder you push, uh, the more he digs in his heels and stops listening. But when you stop pushing and start listening, it not only makes you less angry, but he suddenly finds it easier to seek you out and ask you for your advice. Right. And that's the findings in our research as well. So one of the studies we did with conversational receptiveness was actually to see whether being receptive might make you less persuasive, right? So you could imagine if you're hedging your claims and showing agreement and letting the other person talk, uh, it might be seen as like you're uncertain. And so your message actually has less impact. But instead, we found the opposite. We found that when you have people who disagree on hot button issues, right? So like Black Lives Matter or, you know, what universities should do when there's an accusation of sexual assault on campus. When you train one side to use conversational receptiveness, the other side is a little more likely to actually move towards their perspective. When we come back, barriers to conversational receptiveness and how to overcome them. You're listening to Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. Support for Hidden Brain comes from Nintendo Switch. Bring everyone together for a great time with the Nintendo Switch system and play games that the whole family can enjoy, like Super Mario Bros. Wonder and more. Nintendo Switch has three different play modes in one system. Play in TV mode, tabletop mode, or handheld mode on the go. Visit nintendo.com slash us slash switch to learn more. Game rated E for everyone. Support for Hidden Brain comes from BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Maybe you'd see a movie by yourself, take a nap, read a book, or talk with a friend. Or maybe you'd enjoy doing nothing for once. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hidden today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hidden. This is Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. Psychologist Julia Minson studies how conversational receptiveness can diffuse conflicts and allow people to work together even in the face of intractable disagreements. 
Julia, the behaviors associated with conversational receptiveness seem relatively straightforward, and yet they can be difficult to implement, as you yourself have discovered. Uh, you recently had a conflict with a colleague as you were working around the clock to organize a huge academic conference. Tell me what happened. We had we had a miscommunication with uh, one of the researchers who uh, had organized a panel for the conference. And uh, the panel did not appear on the schedule and, you know, the researcher was upset and we got an email back that said, let me tell you how sick and tired I am as a woman of color not being taken seriously in my role. And there were a couple of things that, you know, made me particularly upset about this email. One was that organizing this conference is sort of nowhere in my job description. I was doing the field a favor during kind of this big time of crisis where, you know, everybody was running around trying to keep work afloat on Zoom. And so I had taken on this big task and we were rapidly approaching the conference and everybody was working really, really hard. And the other piece, of course, is the accusation that we, you know, mistreated this person because she is a woman of color, felt particularly unfounded because, you know, them being left off the program was a complete misunderstanding and an innocent one of that. And so I was really upset, right? I'm at the grocery store, like literally in the produce aisle, and I get this email that's accusing me of being a racist and a sexist in one breath. And I've sort of at this point learned my lessons about conversational receptiveness. And I thought, okay, here's what I need to do. I need to get home and I need to write this email and I'm going to use conversational receptiveness and I'm going to acknowledge and I'm going to hedge my claims and I'm going to find areas of agreement and all the things. And the entire time I'm driving home and I'm writing these different drafts of this email in my head and none of them sound receptive. All of them are focused on me wanting to express how incredibly upset I am that this happened to me and how right I am and how wrong she is and how underappreciated and frustrated I am. And I mean, honestly, by the time I was coming home, I was starting to think like, well, maybe conversational receptiveness isn't that useful because I can't, I can't think of any way to apply it to the situation, <laughs> you know, and then, and then I walk in the house and my husband starts helping me unload the groceries. And so, and I'm telling him about this whole thing and I'm, you know, fuming and saying how I need to write back because I can't just like ignore this, but also I can't think of anything particularly civil to say. And he basically just started dictating the email to me because, you know, of course, he listens to me talk about conversational receptiveness all day long. So he knows the entire uh, toolkit and he was just fabulous at it. And I mean, I literally typed out what he said and I sent it off. And within hours, I got a lovely email back that said, thank you so much for understanding and you can relate to how hard it is to be a woman in academia. And, you know, one day when, you know, the pandemic is over, we will get together and we'll get to know each other. And, and it was just a very nice email from a person who felt heard. 
And I mean, my husband gets the credit for, <laughs> for hearing her because in that moment, I certainly couldn't. So I want to talk about the role of emotions as we're having these conflicts and disagreements. It's hard in the middle of a heated argument to put on your thinking cap and remember what the smart thing is to do. Can you just talk about how our emotions can sidetrack us from what is self-evidently the right thing to do? It's interesting. Emotion, of course, plays a huge role in conflict. And in some of my work, what we see is that, you know, the primary emotion in attitude conflict is anger. It's anger and frustration, sort of why don't these people get it? Why don't they see it the way I see it? So I think anger and frustration play a huge role in our inability to sort of do the right thing even when you know what the right thing is. You know, it's like there's like I almost think of like there's a bug flying and I just have to like smush it. <laughs> you know, I can't let it keep flying around my head. Um, and it's that impulse to put an end to the speech that you strongly disagree with, I think often gets us in trouble. One thing that you have found that poisons the water, and in some ways, you know, the letter that you received from your fellow academic, I think, speaks to this, is that when we're upset in conflicts, uh, many of us resort to using moral language. So I don't just simply say, you know, I'm upset that I've been left off the conference schedule. What explains the oversight? The person went to the additional length of basically saying, I've been left off the conference schedule because of racism and sexism. What is the effect of using moralizing language as we are debating and disagreeing with each other, Julia? Uh, yeah, so moralizing language tends to uh, pour oil on the fire in the sense that it's very, very hard to stand in the face of that kind of accusation and not react emotionally, right? Yeah. And of course, in the course of arguments, we often think that using moral language is sort of a, a sledgehammer, right? It's sort of where we use it almost as a tactical weapon on the battlefield to basically disarm and disable our opponents. But of course, our opponents are doing exactly the same to us. Right, right. And this is sort of you know, back to naive realism, right? We believe that we have the ultimate kind of form of evidence on our side, which is that our argument is morally superior. And so once I bring that, you know, moral perspective into this, there's no longer going to be any debate. One of the things about this uh, this four-stage process that you articulated, one of the more surprising things, I think, is that you find that when people spend time articulating their opponent's point of view, actually giving their own airtime to articulating what their opponents think, it actually makes it more likely that they are going to be heard uh, in, in, in turn. And why do you think that it's effective to spend your own airtime articulating what the other person is thinking? I think there's probably two reasons why it works. I spend a lot of time thinking about why is it we're in such a rush in conflict? And I think there's two reasons why we're in a rush. One is how it just feels terrible to have, you know, bad ideas out in the world and how we just want to like bat them down. The other is that most of these conversations are very unpleasant. And so you want to get out of there and you expect that your partner wants to get out of there. And so there's this feeling of like, if I don't say it, then I'm never going to have a chance to say it because 
this is going to be, you know, a short and furious conversation. I think acknowledging your counterpart's point of view and really listening to them and asking them lots of questions triggers two things. One, it triggers reciprocity, right? So reciprocity is one of the most powerful social forces we've ever studied. And if I listen to you patiently and at length, and then I start talking, you're going to feel like a real jerk interrupting me. And now that I have given you my time and, you know, lent you my ear, you now have to do the same. And I think the second thing it triggers is it makes the conversation much less unpleasant. And therefore that feeling of urgency disappears, right? We go from this, like, how fast can I say my piece because this is all about to explode to let's have a long thoughtful, drawn-out conversation about this that just has a very different pace to it. In, in studying conversational receptiveness, um, you drew a distinction between actually displaying conversational receptiveness as in actually feeling it, you know, what's going on inside your head, and actually uh, demonstrating it on the outside, regardless of whether you actually feel that way or not. So in the email that you composed to your fellow academic, presumably at the point at which you hit send, given that your husband composed the email for you, you know, you didn't actually feel uh, everything that you said in the email, and yet it had the effect of having the other person say, okay, this person is really listening to me. What are you recommending here? Are you recommending that we actually try to be more empathetic and open to other people or that we simply just demonstrate that we're doing those things? You know, I wish the world was a place where people in conflict could feel empathetic and open and then act on that empathy in a way that's sort of transparent and recognizable to their counterparts. But I don't think that's how humans work. <laughs> I think conversational receptiveness is a lot like the other um, types of aspirations we have that sometimes we live up to and sometimes we fail to live up to, right? So we have lots of goals. I want to exercise more often. I want to spend less time on Twitter. You know, I want to, you know, call my mom, like all the things that you know you want to do, but for various reasons you fail to live up to. And I think conversational receptiveness is like that. It's that you aren't as receptive as you aspire to be. And so in that moment, I think faking it is perfectly fine, right? You get there however you get there because it leads to a better outcome. You know, if you think back to my example, right, I didn't write the email that the screaming voice in my head was writing. I knew that that was not the kind of person I wanted to be in this situation. And so I think conversational receptiveness is a toolkit to kind of help people live up to their best selves, even when in the emotional moment, they can't quite do it like they can't improvise their way there. Mm. Or they can't do it authentically, if you will. Right, right, right. But the diffused fight is better than the undiffused fight. <laughs> Conversational receptiveness is not a magic bullet. Not everyone you listen to carefully is going to come around to your point of view. 
In her own life, Julia has realized that what conversational receptiveness really allows her to do is to keep an intractable conflict in one domain from derailing an entire relationship. Yeah, I think part of what happens is people are so focused on persuading the other side that they don't think about laying the groundwork for the next conversation, right? Every conversation is just the lead up to the future conversation. And so what can you do now to make the next one better, kinder, more informative, more harmonious, you know, all of those things. And then, you know, persuasion may or may not happen somewhere along the way, but can we focus on the next conversation? Julia Minson is a psychologist at Harvard University. Julia, thank you for joining me today on Hidden Brain. My pleasure. Hidden Brain is produced by Hidden Brain Media. Our audio production team includes Bridget McCarthy, Annie Murphy-Paul, Kristen Wong, Laura Quirrell, Ryan Katz, Autumn Barnes, and Andrew Chadwick. Tara Boyle is our executive producer. I'm Hidden Brain's executive editor. For our unsung hero, we turn the mic over to you, our listeners. Today's unsung hero is brought to you by OnStar. OnStar advisors are now with you everywhere, on the app, in your car, and at home. OnStar, be safe out there. Our story comes from Rich Addison. So when I was young, I was very shy. Uh, I was an only child who was pretty comfortable talking to adults, but I never had any brothers and sisters to practice on, so I wasn't very good at kind of mixing it up with the other kids. And I remember being very anxious about going to school. And on Sunday nights, I would not be able to sleep, just worrying about what would happen with the other kids. So now, flash forward a few years, and I'm in high school, and I realized that I had to be different, that I couldn't keep being so shy. So I went about developing a quick wit and a sense of humor that would keep other kids off balance so I wouldn't have to feel powerless. You know how sometimes people say the best defense is a good offense? Well, that was what I was doing. But the sense of humor I developed was kind of biting and kind of critical. So now my hero is about to come into the story. And this was my friend, Holly. And one day, Holly and I were talking, and she said to me, you know, Rich, sometimes you really hurt people's feelings. And at first, I was just shocked. I said to myself, that can't be true. I, I was entertaining. I made people laugh. I liked people. These were my friends. I didn't want to hurt them. I couldn't be hurting them. But I kept thinking about what Holly said, and I kept turning it over in my mind. And eventually, I realized that she was absolutely right. And I started paying attention to how my humor was affecting other people. And I 
changed it. It didn't happen immediately. It didn't happen overnight. But um, I changed, and I wanted to be more compassionate towards people, and I wanted to have a different kind of relationship with them than always keeping them off balance. So after I went on to become a clinical psychologist, and in my role, I try to help other people have generous interpretations about themselves and others. And I've also made a career out of training physicians to do that. And I really am so grateful that I made that shift in my life. And I really owe it to Holly. And I think back to that time so many years ago and when she cared enough to say something to me, something that probably wasn't easy to say, but it was something that changed the direction of my life in a very significant and very gratifying way. So thank you, Holly. You're my unsung hero. Rich Addison lives in Santa Rosa, California. Recently, he was able to reconnect with Holly and tell her how much her comment has meant to him some 50 years later. This segment was brought to you by OnStar. OnStar believes everyone has the right to feel safe everywhere. That's why their emergency advisors are now available to help, not only in the car, but wherever you are, on your phone, in your car, and at home. OnStar. Be safe out there. If you like this episode and would like us to produce more shows like this, please consider supporting our work. Go to support.hiddenbrain.org. Again, if episodes like this help you live a better life, if they improve the quality of your relationships, please do your part to help us make more shows like this. Go to support.hiddenbrain.org. I'm Shankar Vedantam. See you soon. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.